Now take your Bible and open up to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 53, one verse in that chapter. And then we'll read chapter 8 through verse 11. John chapter 7, verse 53 says, And everyone went to his home. But Jesus, chapter 8, verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, or in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that uh, they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he, as he uh, was left alone, and, and, and then he was left alone, and the woman, uh, where she was in the midst, and straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for an opportunity to turn now to your word and pray that you would uh, guide us as we study and then teach us the things that you have for us to learn in this portion uh, of Scripture before us. We pray these these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you see, we're back in the the study of the book of John. We took a little break last week, uh, last Lord's Day, to remind ourselves uh, of what I read out of Psalm 103, that the Lord is in control, right? God is in control always. God is in control of all things, uh, even the wicked. Uh, uh, That God rules over the affairs of mankind from his throne, firmly established in the heavens. One of my most uh, favorite portions of scripture amongst many, but Isaiah 46, 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Tremendous portion, tremendous encouragement. Habakkuk 2, we spent some time there. The righteous shall live by faith. Right? God has a plan for time and eternity that no man is going to stop. He's going to glorify himself. He's going to exalt his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king of all kings, who is the Lord of all lords, who is going to soon return and crush all of his enemies. So those of us who believe what God, or believe God, and believe what God says to be true, in spite of the craziness, the chaos in the world of rebellious, sinful men all around us, we can lay our heads down at night on our pillows and go to sleep because God is in charge. Amen? We are not caught up in this nonsense. If you missed last week for whatever reason, you might want to listen to that sermon. I think it will help you and it will encourage your heart. What does God say? Will we? It's one thing to believe in God, it's another thing to believe God. Will we believe God? That's the issue. Now, when we come to the verses before us that I started, uh, that I read, uh, we come to a very familiar story, but immediately we're confronted with uh, a portion of Scripture in which there's quite a bit of controversy. And the issue has to do with the earliest manuscripts. Many of the earliest manuscripts do not contain the verses that I read from John 
753 through 811. Therefore, if you look in some of your versions, uh, you may find it in brackets uh, and some kind of explanatory note saying it wasn't included in the earliest manuscripts, that it was uh, added later, uh, indicating that that portion of Scripture may have not been an original part of John's uh, gospel. Uh, You're confronted with the same kind of issue over in Mark uh, 16, the end of that uh, uh, chapter 9 through 20. Uh, Mark uh, Mark 16, one of the longest and most famous texts in the New Testament, who's also, uh, that's authentic, uh, authenticity is questioned. Now, I don't want to get too far out in the weeds on this thing. I don't, I don't want to turn this issue into some kind of seminary level, uh, discussion on textual criticism. But I do need to say just a couple of things. I think we're pretty much all aware of the fact that we don't possess any autographs, right? We don't want to possess any original, uh, copies of the New Testament book, in part because, of, probably a number of reasons, but in part because of the materials that they were written on. What we have, though, is we have tremendous numbers of uh, literally thousands and thousands of, uh, of manuscripts or pieces of manuscript. So what we read in the English comes, uh, in the New Testament, comes from all these literally thousands of Greek manuscripts that are, when you start comparing them, they're all remarkably close in, in, their, uh, in their readings. And then the variations between the manuscripts, for the most part, are only minor insignificance. I don't even know. I'd be interested somehow to find out. You don't have to raise your hand, but uh, is uh, Dr. Robert Gramacki still at the university? Do you know? No? Probably retired a long time ago, huh? Robert Gramacki was a very um, famous, um, distinguished professor of Bible and uh, Greek at Cedarville University for a long time. So if you can find anything written by Dr. Gramacki, I'd encourage you to put it in your library. He has a book. It's out of print, but I have a, tra- I have a copy of it. It's called Translations on Trial. And uh, he says this, and he's helpful. It says, most of the variant readings were or originated unintentionally. Some were errors of the eye, changes made when a copyist misread the divisions of words, omitted letters in words, repeated a letter, or transposed the position of two letters within a word. There were also errors of the ear. Sometimes one person would read from a manuscript, and several would make uh, simultaneous copies as they listened uh, and wrote such oral pronunciation uh, as they listened and wrote, such oral pronunciation could cause two persons to write two different words. For example, the difference between the possessive your, Y-O-U-R, which is hamon, H-E-M-O-N, transliterated, and the word our, O-U-R, which is H-U-M-O-N, right, in the Greek is very slight and therefore could be easily confused. There were errors of memory. A copyist would uh, read a manuscript and then write, depending upon his short recall of memory, as we often forget telephone numbers and write them down wrong or forget names. It's easy to do. Uh, some changes were intentional. A copyist may have concluded that the source manuscript contained grammatical, historical, or doctrinal errors, and with all good intention, he may have introduced changes into his copy, end quote. So that may be in part some of the issues that deal with, uh, that are going on in this portion of Scripture. Uh, again, the text that I read, 753 through 811, is not found in any of the earliest manuscripts or versions, which would have been translations into other languages. The earliest manuscript that it's found in was about from the 5th century A.D. Uh, all the church, early church fathers omitted the narrative in their commentaries on John, moving from chapter 7, verse 52, right into chapter 8, verse 12. And you realize, too, that verses and chapter divisions were later editions, right? And no Eastern father before the 10th century cites the text. Uh, Many later manuscripts include the passage and then mark it off to show that it is of doubtful authority. 
and, and again, among those different um, manuscripts, there are many textual variants. Some of the manuscripts that included actually put it in other places in the book of John. Sometimes you might find it after verse 44 of chapter 7, sometimes after verse 36 in chapter 7, sometimes uh, after uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, or even Luke 21, uh, 38 and following. So all of that would be known, what is known as external evidence or external testimony against the inclusion of this portion of text within the discipline of what is known as textual criticism, uh, again, used uh, by scholars to evaluate which readings are most likely the original. There's also internal evidence against its inclusion, again, evaluating the probabilities that a scribe might have done or whether intentionally or unintentionally, again, uh, resulted in uh, various uh, uh, readings. There's a great number number of scholars who've come to this portion of the text and they say, well, you know, the, the style, the Greek construction, the vocabulary uh, of this portion of Scripture, <coughs> excuse me, is significantly different than the rest of the Gospel of John. So uh, they say that, that it shouldn't be in there. Other people come along and they say, well, the story interrupts the flow of the narrative uh, in, in uh, John 52, uh, 7, verse 52 to 8, uh, 12. So while most of the older manuscripts leave out this portion of Scripture entirely, two of them actually leave blank spaces where it could have come. So again, it's not until the medieval era, medieval manuscripts, does the text seem to be included on a regular basis with any regularity. James Boyce, uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with in his commentary, uh, is willing to accept the story as genuine, although perhaps not part of the original gospel as John wrote it. He says this, While it is true most of the early manuscripts omit the story, it's also true that the story is historically reliable. It's found elsewhere in early church writings. In Eusebius, uh, the church historian tells us that Papias, who died not long after 100 AD, knew the story of a woman who was accused of many sins before the Lord. Later, Jerome unquestioningly uh, included it in the Latin Vulgate. Uh, now, so there, there are a number of folks that say we shouldn't include it, but on the other side, there's also a number of folks that say <coughs> that there's a good uh, case to be made for its inclusion uh, into the gospel in this in very this particular place in John's gospel. Those people will come along and say, you know, it kind of fits a pattern that you see in John that he's been using for the last couple of chapters, a few chapters. From chapter 5 onward, there's stories used to set the theme of the teaching that follows uh, thus, the miracle of the healing of the disabled man, which began in chapter 5, becomes the text for the sermon that follows. The feeding of the multitude in chapter 6 leads to the discourse of Christ as the bread of life. The discussion between Jesus and his brother going to, to the feast in chapter 7 is an introduction to Christ's word words at the feast. So likewise, this group would say the story of Christ dealing with his adulterous woman is the introduction into the speech on a combination of the issues of righteousness and freedom in Christ that the rest of the chapter Uh, declares that Christ brings. So there are a lot of scholars on both sides. There are a lot of really uh, reputable scholars uh, on the uh, on uh, from the past and from the present who line up literally on both sides of the of the argument. Uh, Those who insist it's not part of uh, John's original gospel, those who argue in spite of the weak uh, textual support, it should be included in the gospel and treated as inspired text. Um, There are those again who argue the story interrupts the flow. Uh, of John's gospel, and, and that's kind of where I have originally landed as I've read through this. 
uh, and looked at this issue. But then, as I start to read the guys who argue the other point that the story fits fine in the flow of Gospels, uh, the flow of John's Gospel, I can see the validity of those um, uh, points of view also. So, and, and again, uh, the reason why it might not be found in some of the earlier versions may and being uh, omitted is, like I said uh, earlier, and some of the older guys, Augustine and uh, Ambrose in the late 4th century and 5th century, believe this story may have been intentionally omitted by certain scribes because it seemed in the scribes' mind to suggest perhaps that Jesus condoned or was too lenient on adultery or fornication. But then there are other guys like uh, Bruce Metzger who come along and say, well, no, you know what, there's no other instance of, uh, of scribe making such an extensive textual deletion on moral grounds. And if that were true, then why leave in John's gospel the account of the Samaritan woman who's also uh, guilty of sexual immoralities? And Jesus' rebuke of her was much milder and less direct than the adulterous woman here in John 8. So again, there's good men on both sides of the argument, both sides of the issue who line up. So the question is, how do we deal with it? Some people, uh, it's interesting, they just toss it out altogether. Some people who I've read or listened to at one point in their ministry have taught through it, and the next time they come back and teach through it, they just chuck it. And, uh, and they say, well, you know, it's not a part of the original text. Um, and then some people say, well, it's not, perhaps not a part of the original text, but the story is true. And again, most certainly it happened historically at some place along the way in the ministry of Christ. And the story is true to the character and the nature of Christ and, uh, and with accordance of everything or every point concerning his holiness, his wisdom, his uh, compassion, etc. And what is taught in this portion of Scripture uh, doesn't violate any other portion of Scripture. In fact, it teaches truths that are in accordance with other portions of Scripture. Therefore, since the story was floating about, if you will, uh, in uh, early uh, New Testament church, the scribes uh, at some point decided to insert it here. So I said to myself, well, what are we going to do? What, what are we going to do with this portion of Scripture? And I thought, well, you know, by this time, it's probably far too early to go to lunch. So we're, we're not going to just uh, set it aside and stop right here, which we could do, I guess. And that's what some people have done. Close your Bible, and that's it for today. You know, there's your history lesson on textual criticism. And, and since it does appear, I think I looked up. It appears in every modern version, I think, that you have in your hands. It seems appropriate to me we'd work through the text. Uh, especially since the story is not so much about the adulterous woman or even the hypocritical religious leaders who use her uh, to attack Jesus with the law. It really is another story in the flow of the book of John that points us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the central figure. He's the central issue. And and again, since the story no doubt describes an actual historical event uh, from Christ's life, I think it deserves our attention. All right, so we're going to work with it. Now, you remember uh, a couple times ago when we were finishing up uh, chapter 7, verse 52. Remember in the context, Jesus had been teaching in the temple during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And there arose a great division because of him. And I told you that Jesus Christ is the most divisive person in history. The most divisive person who's ever lived in human history. Because he claimed to be the only way of eternal life. And the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That, that's, a, that's a dividing line. So he is the dividing line of all human history. And as I've said repeatedly through the series, every man has to deal with the person of Jesus Christ. Every person has to answer on a personal level, who do you think he is? Now, sadly, over time, countless millions of individuals uh, have made the wrong choice concerning Jesus. And as a result, they're going to face the eternal punishment 
that goes with that mistake, that error in, in, in submitting themselves to the word of God because of the rejection of the truth. But the truth is that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of that truth. That's why he has given you a Bible and a language you can understand. He's given you his word. He has put into place teachers and preachers and pastors and elders to help you understand. Don't buy the book on decoding the Bible. You got to put on your secret glasses and your secret decoder ring and every third letter means don't buy that kind of nonsense. It's out there everywhere. You look at me. Some people are like that. No, they're out there everywhere. You got to have a secret password to understand the Bible. No, God wants you to know the truth. He wants you to know the truth. God desires that all men would be saved coming to knowledge of the truth because he wants you to confess the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead so that you might be what? Fill in the blank. You might be, you might be saved. He desires your salvation. The Bible says there's salvation in no one else. No other name under heaven that has been given among men by which they can be, a man can be saved except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So every time we come to the book of John... It's my prayer, it's my encouragement, it's my hope that you continue to carefully evaluate the evidence that John lays out in his gospel so that you might come to understand the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of the living God, that by believing, by believing that truth you might have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of the, of the book of John. Now look back up to verse 37. We're going to kind of take a, a running start at this. Verse 37. It says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Remember, I told you it's one of the greatest, most profound gospel invitations found anywhere in the New Testament text, anywhere in the scripture. An invitation for those who are spiritually thirsty, who have spiritual thirsty souls, to come to Christ, to pass from death unto life. To come to the fountain of living water. It's an open invitation to anyone and everyone who desires forgiveness of sin. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Verse 39, but this he spoke in the Spirit, and this he spoke of the Spirit, whom uh, those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Verse 41 uh, others were saying, this is the Christ. So some people responded to that invitation. Some people actually became genuine believers. Yet there's still a number of people who stand in opposition to him and to the truth. As verse 41 continues, says, still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, of the village where David was? So verse 43, there arose a division in the multitude because of him. Again, Christ always brings division among men. He divides the believer from the unbeliever. He divides the saved from the, from the condemned. He, he, he divides the children of God from the children of the devil. He divides those who are with him and those who are against him. And again, there's no middle ground with the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Uh, the officers uh, came for, to the chief priest. Or the officers therefore came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to him, Why did you not bring him? Verse 46, the officer said, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. The Pharisees therefore answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this multitude which does not know the law is accursed. Right? So the, the, the religious leaders that are supposed to be caring for the souls of these individual, uh, individuals 
don't have any concern about them. They just have scorn, right? This multitude that doesn't know the law, they're cursed, right? So these religious leaders don't really care. They're not shepherds, not true shepherds. They don't care for the souls of the people they're supposed to be watching over. And they're really not interested in the truth. Not interested in the truth, not interested in the spiritual well-being of the nation. If they were, they would have known that Jesus is the Christ, right? They would have recognized him. The evidence is absolutely undeniable. But they're not. They're not interested in the truth. They won't, they won't submit themselves to the truth. They've already made up their minds to stay in unbelief, right? It's their arrogance, their ignorance, it's their hatred, the hardness of their heart. The evil of their unbelief is on a full display here in the, in the text. Verse 15. Nicodemus said to them, he who came to him before, being one of them, our law does not judge a man unless it first uh, hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Verse 52, they answered and said to him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now drop down immediately to chapter, uh, chapter 8 down to verse 12. Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Therefore, again, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have uh, the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You people judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. I'm not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So they were saying to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered and said, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now, those who hold out that verse 53 through uh, uh, verse 11 of chapter 8 are incorrectly uh, inserted into this portion. That's how they would read the text. That's how they would read that text, right? Where was Jesus back before verse 53, chapter 7? Answer, in the temple, right? During the teaching of the Feast of Tabernacles. Where is Jesus in verse 20 of chapter 8? Answer, in the temple, right? Teaching in the treasury. Back in chapter 7, verse... 37, Jesus offered himself as living water, that if anybody would drink the water that he would provide, that they would never thirst again. And I told you previously that part of the important part of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles was water. There was a ceremony that happened each day at the high point of the ceremony, uh, perhaps the very moment that Christ spoke the words of invitation, the priest takes the water from the pool of Siloam, he brings it to the altar, and he pours it out upon the altar. So water was very important. Jesus says, "I, I am the I am the fountain of life, right? Come to me if you're thirsty, or thirsty and drink. Another important uh, part of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles was a candle lighting ritual where huge candelabras were set up in, in the temple and they would give illumination to the entire temple. Again, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, was in remembrance of the 40 years of wandering that they wandered in the wilderness and God provided them. He provided them water out of a rock and he also provided them direction and light Right, that they were being led by a pillar of fire at night and then a lighted cloud during the daytime. So that when Jesus comes in verse 12 and makes that statement, I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life, that again was perhaps a profound moment that he was making that claim. Um, maybe if it's a continuous right there in the temple as the lighting ceremony is going on, he's making a profound claim to be the one. 
He's the one who leads God's people. He's the one who leads them out of darkness into light. He's the one who leads them into the kingdom of everlasting light. He's the one who is the light of the world. Again, it's a claim to deity. Profound statement. When we get to it, we'll we'll deal with it in in full. But I just wanted you to see uh, that argument that you, again, I think could make a case just by internal evidence, uh, uh, just to flow right from chapter uh, uh, verse 52 and right into, into verse uh, 12, right? The water ceremony, the, the lighting ceremony, they kind of go together, okay? But nevertheless, we're going to set that aside because we're going to just deal with it as it appears in the text, right? So we're going to look back here at verse 53 of chapter 7, and I do, again, think it's a historical account in the life of Christ. Whether it happened here or somewhere else, I, I, I don't know. I don't know that anybody can be 100% sure, but it's worth our time. Again, verse uh, 53 out of chapter 7. And everyone went to his home. Jesus, verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Now again, since we don't know exactly where it fits into the text chronologically, or fits in the text or chronologically uh, in the life of Christ, again, if at all, in the, the Gospel of John, some have actually suggested that the Luke version, remember I told you the Luke suggestion, Luke 21 37, 38, that area. It's probably a better place to put it. Maybe this happened during the Passion Week. I don't know. We'll just take it at face value. Right? We'll suggest, uh, we'll come to this, I'll put on the table a suggestion that the Feast of Tabernacles has come to an end. Verse 53, everybody went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Again, uh, verses and chapter breaks are, are added later. So everybody goes to their home. Jesus spends his night out in the open, which has caused some commentators to take up their pen at this point and point out the humility of Christ, the condescension of Christ, of the creator of the universe, right? Here's the creator of the universe, and he has nowhere to sleep, right? Philippians 2 and 7, he, Christ, he emptied himself, took on the form of a bondservant, made in likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus himself once said, Matthew 8 and 20, uh, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, right? So therefore, here again, you have God in flesh, uh, the creator he stepped into time put on our humanity the feast is over and everybody goes home and he sleeps on the mountainside well i'm not going to argue the point the, the humility of christ is a very true thing i don't know if that's the authorial intent of um john at this point uh, when he says everybody went to his home and jesus went to the mount of olives it could mean just possibly that everybody went to his home and jesus went to the mount of olives i, I don't know it might make a case for for that the very next text, verse 2, says, Early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. So again, those who uh, take this portion of Scripture to fit into the flow of the text would say, Well, you know what that phraseology, early in the morning, teaches? And you say, No, I don't know. Good, I'll tell you. Okay? Because I figured there'd be some that didn't know. You know what that really teaches you? That teaches you a practical spiritual lesson that we should seek the Lord early in the morning. We should make him preeminent by way of practice, beginning each day with God. Well, that's true in and of itself. That's true. But again, I'm not sure that fits in with authorial intent. I'm not sure that's John's intent here. It could very simply mean that Jesus came early in the morning into the temple because he didn't come at midday, nor did he come in the afternoon or late in the evening. could mean that. It's amazing when you read the Bible, if it says something, I would assume that one, God knows how to speak, and the uh, Holy and Spirit, and Spirit uh, writers, right, the, that have guided the pen of the writer, probably, the Holy Spirit probably knows how to tell them how to write. And probably words mean thing, mean something. 
So I would encourage you stick with the simplest meaning of the text before you start launching off into some kind of spiritualized deal, right? Early in the morning, he came into the, again into the temple. And here again, some people want to say, well, you know, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world, right? Well, he, he, well the sun is coming up. And he saw the sun out. You know, man, I, I don't know that you could do that either. You know, I mean, just deal with what it says. Early in the morning, Jesus came to the light of the came into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Now, again, if this fits chronologically right after the Feast of the Tabernacles is over, then you would suggest perhaps there's still people kind of milling around the area in the city, and there's a lot of people. Whatever, there's still people, and they enter into the temple. Jesus enters into the temple, and he sits down somewhere and begins to teach. And the truth is, the power of his teaching was so strong that people were attracted to Jesus. His words, right? They were attracted to him. And you'll notice in the text what's not there. There's no gimmicks. There's no fanfare. There's no smoke machine, no strobe lights. There's nobody playing just as I am, manipulating, I mean, playing music in the background. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Now, this is where the story begins to really unfold. And this is where the wickedness of sin uh, becomes on full display. And I'm not speaking just about the woman uh, who's caught in adultery. No doubt her activities were sinful. But the real evil that is going on here, the real sin that is so staggering and disgusting, is the conspiracy that's going on with the religious leaders. They had tried to arrest Jesus during the Feast of the Tabernacle, but they failed when the guards came back empty-handed. And now the false religious leaders here are going to try to develop a sinister trap to try to discredit Jesus in an absolute wicked, evil plan of unspeakable proportion. Because they're going to try to trap Jesus with this woman, and then they're going to try to trap Jesus with the law. Right? The holy, just, good law of God. They're going to try to trap the holy and righteous one. Now, to understand the situation here a little better, what's going on, in Jewish legal procedures, uh, they were extremely careful and judicious to deal with these kind of matters, especially when there was a crime that was possibly punishable by execution. So again, what you're seeing here is not only an attempt to trap Jesus, but you're seeing the religious leaders most certainly had already trapped this woman to be a part of their wicked scheme. James Boyce says this in his commentary. He says, To understand precisely what these men are doing, we must understand that not only was their approach to Jesus a trap, they had actually already been active in trapping the woman. In fact, he says, it could hardly be otherwise. On the basis of their testimony, in light of the very exacting requirements of Jewish law in this and other capital cases, under Jewish law, it was practiced as it was practiced by the rabbis in the time of Christ and later, it was necessary to have multiple witnesses to the act of intercourse before the charge of adultery could be substantiated. And even then, it was to be under the most exacting circumstances. Thus, Boyce says, one scholar points out, there is absolutely no question of the witnesses having seen the couple in compromising, quote-unquote, compromising situation, for example, uh, coming uh, from a room in which they were alone or lying on a bed together, uh, lying together on the same bed, 
The writer has, the scholar says, the actual physical movements of the couple must have been capable of no other explanation, and the witnesses must have seen exactly the same acts, exactly the same time, in the presence of each other, so that their disposition would be identical in every respect. Close quote. Boyce goes on and says, under the circumstances, the obtaining of evidence in adultery would be almost impossible if the situation itself not a setup. We are justified in supposing that the liaison had been arranged perhaps by the very man who committed adultery with the woman. Was he a member of the Sanhedrin, Boyce asks. Whatever the case, the argument must have involved the posting of a witness in the room or at a keyhole. So the gross wickedness that is on display here is by the religious leaders, so-called. Because notice what the text says next in verse 3. Scribes and the Pharisees, which, again, with the exception of Nicodemus, were always hostile towards uh, Jesus and John's gospel. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in their midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of had been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the question that's going through all of your minds at this moment is where's the man? This woman has been caught in adultery in the very act, right? The scribes and the Pharisees brought the woman caught in the act of adultery and set her in their midst. Now only the woman is before Jesus, which again shows the dishonesty of the whole thing. It's a, it's a wicked setup. Because if you want to prove uh, adultery on the testimony of two witnesses, you need to bring the man. Where's the man? And those who had apprehended the woman had certainly seen the man also, but since they'd also seen the man also since she was seized in the, quote-unquote, the very act. Why did they not also bring the man before Jesus? Because, again, the law demanded out of Leviticus chapter 20 that both parties be executed. So why was the woman brought and where was the man? Why was the man not brought with the woman? If justice is what they're seeking. If the crime is really the issue of adultery that the religious leaders are claiming, what happened to him? Did they allow him to escape? Did they grant him immunity, if you will, beforehand? Not only did the man abandon the woman and allow her to take the fall, Again, the whole scenario very strongly suggests the man that committed the adultery with the woman seduced her for that very purpose. Which again shows the callousness, the evil intent of all involved in this wicked conspiracy. And then it shows the contempt that these so-called religious leaders have because the religious leaders have set up an evil conspiracy against this woman to try to trap Christ that could cost this woman her, that could cost this woman her very life. So again, it's very likely that the religious leaders had set the trap to catch this woman so they, in turn, could trap Jesus and accuse him. Either agreeing that the woman, Jesus, has, would have to agree, they're trying to back him into a corner, if you will, to agree that the woman must be stoned to death as the law requires, therefore undermining Jesus' reputation as a savior among sinners. And if that went through, then that would get him in trouble with uh, the Roman authorities, because they didn't give the Jews a right to capital punishment. On the other hand, if he showed her mercy, then he would demonstrate the fact that he didn't uphold the law of Moses, that he was soft on sin. So it's a deliberate trap that has been set up by these wicked men, as again, they only bring one sinner before Jesus. And again, the question 
is where's the man? Right? Where's the man if the religious leaders are so concerned about justice and holiness and righteousness? Now, Stephen Cole, in his commentary, suggests that the woman was probably a young girl. He says, we can't say for certain, but probably she was a young girl. In the law of Moses, the penalty, penalty for adultery was death for both parties. Since Jewish girls were often engaged as young as 13 or 14, this girl may have been a frightened teenager. Clearly, he says, they didn't care about her at all. If they cared about her, they could have held her in private custody until they brought formal charges against her, but they didn't care about her feelings or about humiliating her in public. She was just a pawn for them to use and discard in their attempt to trap Jesus, close quote. So this is a wicked, evil plot. And the whole thing gets even worse, if it can get worse, but it does get worse if you consider how the religious leaders use the word of God. They treat the word of God, again, as nothing more than just a weapon to trap Jesus. And then you stop and consider the fact that the religious leaders, so-called, are sinning against the sinless one, the sinless son of God. And again, the religious leaders, they're not concerned one bit about God's honor, about God's holiness amongst God's people. They just want to destroy Jesus. That's their intent. One commentator makes this observation. He says they're using scripture to judge others, but to not judge themselves. He says that's very common in Christian circles also. People use the Bible for their own selfish ends, to judge others and to bring down their enemies, but they never apply it to themselves. And so it is often religious people, those professing to know Christ, who are just as guilty of sin and uh, as openly immoral people are. Close quote. Verse 4 again says, They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. In the very act. Now, Stephen Cole in his commentary points out, well, if she's been caught in the very act, then surely these people, if they were concerned about holiness, righteousness, and justice, if she's been caught in the very act, surely these people were in a position to stop that sin from happening if they wanted to uphold the law and prevent sin rather than just waiting to exploit the sin to destroy Jesus. Uh, Phillips goes on to say, no, no wonder later in chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus speaks of the religious leaders as being of their father, the devil, because that's who these people were. Verse 5 says, Now in the law of Moses, or the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, then what do you say? Now, in the Greek text, that clause is in the emphatic, which means you, what do you say? You, what's your opinion on this? Well, if they've been paying attention, Jesus has already given his opinion on this back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, right, where he upheld the Old Testament prohibition, condemnation of adultery. In fact, Jesus actually went a step further uh, and made the prohibition stronger, condemning not only the physical act, but also the lustful attitude uh, that conceives it. Matthew five twenty-seven. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, verse 28, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. So if you wanted to know Jesus' opinion on this, he's already given and he's actually elevated above the level that the uh, Pharisees were teaching. But again, the truth is the religious leaders aren't interested in justice. The religious leaders aren't interested in bringing the adulterous woman before Christ for any other reason other than to try to destroy him. They're not a bit shocked at her conduct. They're not grieved that God has been uh, offended, that God's holy law had been broken. Their object was just to use this woman to exploit her sin, again, to further their own evil designs against Jesus. 
The law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Verse 6. And they were saying this, testing him, John says, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. So this right here is the wicked issue. This is the wickedness. It's not the adultery, that's sinful. This is the issue. This is the wickedness. It's the setup. In order to try to trap Jesus. In order to attack the Son of God. And again, to attempt to force Jesus into some kind of dilemma so that they could use this situation to destroy him. So again, if Jesus objects to the stoning of this woman, they could say, well, you know, he's guilty of opposing the Mosaic law, which would discredit him as the Messiah. On the other hand, if he agrees that she should be stoned to death, uh, his reputation towards uh, sinners as being a compassionate one is going to be destroyed. And again, if the execution was carried out, then they could report him to the Romans of it, having instituted an execution in defiance of Roman authority. So these wicked religious rulers thought they'd cornered him. One commentator says this, Having failed to arrest him previously, the enemies of Christ upon, uh, hit upon a new scheme. They, thought they sought to impale him on the horns of a dilemma. Right? And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to destroy him. Now, in their unwittingness, these wicked men have hit really upon the problem of all problems. The problem of all problems with respect to the relationship of the sinner to a holy God. Arthur Pink puts it like this. He says, The problem presented Christ here by his enemies was no mere local one. So far as human reason can perceive it, it was the profoundest moral problem which ever could or can confront God himself. That problem was how justice and mercy could be harmonized. The law of righteousness imperatively demands the punishment of its transgressor. To set aside that, that would be to introduce the reign of anarchy. Moreover, God is holy and well as righteous, and holiness burns against evil and cannot allow that which is defiled to enter into his presence. What then is to become of the poor sinner? A transgressor of the law, he certainly is, and equally manifest in his moral pollution. So the only hope lies in mercy. His salvation is possibly only by grace. But how can mercy be exercised when the sword of justice bars her way? How can grace flow forth except by slighting holiness? Human wisdom could never have found an answer to such question. He says it is evident that the scribes and Pharisees thought of none, and we're fully assured that beginning, and we're fully assured, he says, that at the beginning, Satan himself could see no solution to this problem. Right? How do you get, how do you get a holy, uh, sinful man in the presence of a holy God without destroying the sinner? That's the question of all questions. But Pink says, but blessed be his name, God has found a way, amen? Blessed be his name, God has found a way that he, that the banished ones, the sinner, may be restored. It's a great statement, and it points us to only one person, that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can God show love to a sinner without, again, violating his holiness and his justice? Paul stated the problem in Romans chapter 3 when he says, How can God be both just and the justifier of, of the ungodly? And again, from the human standpoint, the problem is unsolvable. James Boyce says, In this, the rulers were right. Even if Jesus wants to show love, he can't, they argued. But they're not aware of the fact that they're not dealing with just a mere man when they deal with Jesus. They're dealing with God. And Boyce says, with God, all things are what? Possible. Man, another tremendous observation. So again, how can divine justice and mercy be harmonized with the God who is holy? The God who is holy and the law is holy, is righteous and good. 
Uh, there's nothing in the law. I've told you so we're going through Romans 7 in the evening. There's nothing in the law that provides forgiveness. All the law says is the soul that sinned will die, Ezekiel 18. The law says all who died under the law are going to be judged by the law. All the law does is bring condemnation upon the head of the sinner. So how can God forgive sinners without violating his holiness? And again, the answer is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. How can a holy God forgive sinners without violating his holiness and his justice? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, By making him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God takes all of our sin and places it upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ becomes our substitute. He, the sinless one, becomes our sin bearer. Romans 3 and 23. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. But for those who repent and those who place their faith in Christ, verse 24, Romans 3 says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Again, it's through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that God's divine justice and mercy meet. Jesus Christ, being perfect God, sinless God, God incarnate, the sinless holy God, he becomes our substitute. And he, through his sacrificial, uh, substitutionary, propitiatory death, he pays the penalty for our sin. He pays the penalty for the sins of all who would believe upon him. Speaking of Christ in Romans 3.23, of whom, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 25 of whom God, Christ, of whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ, listen to me, Jesus Christ is the only answer for mankind's problems. Jesus Christ is the only answer for mankind's problem of sin. Sin in the presence of a holy God. A Psalm 85 verse 10 says the person of Jesus Christ, Psalm 85 10, loving kindness and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's where it comes. It's found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the issue of all issues, the man of all men. Now at this point, uh, Pink in his commentary interjects this, which I think is helpful. He says, let's observe the situation. It has all the essential elements in this problem of all problems. In the present, uh, in the passage printed before us, he says we can summarize them like this. Number one, here we have a person that is the blessed one who had come to seek and save that which is lost. Secondly, we have a sinner, a guilty sinner, one who could not by any means clean her, uh, clear herself. Third, the law that stands against her, and that law is broken, declares the penalty of which is death. And fourth, the guilty sinner which is brought to the Savior and has been indicted by his enemies and such that the problem now presented to Christ would, would the, the problem has now been presented to Christ. The question is, would grace stand helpless before the law? I mean, if grace wants to be gracious, how, how can grace stand unless the law be carried out? That's the question. It says, would grace stand helpless before the law? If not, wherein thy, lies the solution? That's the question. Now, again, I think perhaps coming to church too much, we don't understand how profound this issue is. It is absolutely insolvable apart from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I say this to you all the time. All of the other world religious systems have no concept of this issue because they all think they can solve it. Every single one of them. 
thinks they can solve this issue of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the sinner by working harder, by doing something to appease God. And it's only the truth, biblical Christianity, that says you can't do anything. You're utterly condemned. It's only God's intervention that brings men hope. It's only the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're spending time on this portion of Scripture, because it's wonderful. It points us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's see how the text continues to unfold, continuing here in verse 6. So here again, we're in the temple, we're in the courtyard. And this whole scene, really, I mean, think about this young girl, absolutely petrified, thrown in the middle, probably half-dressed in front of these men. Right? So her, her sin has been publicly exposed. Think about the last time your sin was publicly exposed. No big deal. Go on to the next issue. No, that's not the way we deal with those kind of things. It's terrifying. She's thrown in the middle of the temple. She has to be both humiliated and absolutely terrified. Especially if she's a young kid. Especially if she knows the fact she's about to be stoned to death. The wicked religious leaders are jubilant because they thought they've just caught Jesus. They thought they've just caught him in an impossible dilemma. The crowd has to be in hushed silence as they're intently watching to see how Jesus deals with the situation. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Verse 6 again, they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with a finger wrote on the ground. Now, for a moment, surprisingly, I'm sure, to the religious leaders, Jesus doesn't say anything. Jesus stooped down with a finger wrote on the ground. Now, look. Look in the text. Look in the white spaces to see what it says he wrote. Okay, I'll tell you the answer. It doesn't tell us what he wrote. We should go on, but we can't, right? Because there's all kind of speculation by all kind of commentators throughout the years, perhaps what he wrote. And certain people are really good at doing exegesis on the white spaces or eisegesis from the white spaces. And you look at the commentators throughout the years, perhaps what he wrote, and you know what you notice about almost every one of them? They all write something different. <laughs> They'll give a different answer. The most popular view throughout history has been he listed the sins of the women's accusers. Well, maybe, I don't know, but the text doesn't say, so we don't know. Now, again, all of this, all the possible answers, all the suggestions are nothing more than speculation. What he wrote, obviously, is not essential to the story, or we would have been told. More than likely, again, the religious leaders aren't so much concerned about what he's writing, they're concerned about his silence. They're puzzled by his silence. Maybe they thought they didn't, he didn't know how to reply. Maybe, maybe they, they thought they finally got him. He stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground, verse 7. But they persisted in asking him, and he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down on the ground and wrote, or stooped down and wrote on the ground. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first one to throw a stone at her. Whoa. They didn't see that one coming. Absolute guarantee. They not, were not expecting that kind of an answer, simple but absolutely profound. That answer disarmed the entire situation. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. 
One commentator says this, with those words, he disarmed the trap and put the accusers to flight. That statement could not be construed as setting aside the law. At the same time, it protected the woman from harm since none dared take up his challenge. Just as happened when the guards tried to arrest him. So here, Jesus' presence was overwhelming and uh, overwhelmingly in uh, the overthrow of evil. Right? Jesus' presence was overwhelming in the overthrow of evil. John MacArthur says, <clears throat> The Lord's reply was simple yet profound. It upheld the law since he did not deny the woman's guilt and broadened the law's power by exposing the sins of the accusers. It also avoided the charge of instigating an execution in violation of Roman authority since the Lord put the responsibility back on the accusers. And it mercifully spared the woman from being stoned for her sin. He goes on and says, Jesus knew that, in, that according to the law, the witnesses of the capital offense were to be the first to throw stones at the guilty person, Deuteronomy 13. Obviously, they could have not been parties in the crime or they too would have been executed. It may be then that the woman's accusers were themselves guilty of adultery, if not the physical act, certainly the lust of the heart. As Jesus' masterful, as Jesus's masterful answer neither minimized the woman's guilt or denied the law, but it cut the ground out from under the scribes and the Pharisees by revealing they were unfit to be both her judges and her executioners. That's the truth. That statement just cut the ground out of these, uh, from underneath these guys. Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and <clears throat> said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Verse 9, when they heard it, when they heard the Lord's replying, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. <clears throat> the authorized version says when they heard it, being convicted or convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one, uh, beginning with the eldest. Right? It's an interesting picture. It's an interesting scene, interesting picture of humanity. The older ones, they leave hers. Perhaps they have more sin to remember. The older ones who've got a little bit more sin, a lot more sin, a lot more wisdom, they realize they've just been humiliated publicly, they've just been defeated, they leave. Those who had came to condemn the woman left themselves condemned. Those who came to trap Jesus, they themselves were trapped. Again, convicted by their own conscience. But again, this picture is a stunning demonstration of the wickedness of the fallen human heart. They were convicted by their own conscience of their guilt and instead of, at that moment, themselves stopping and casting themselves down at the feet of Christ and repenting, they're like many people who hear the truth, they feel convicted, and they just remain and become even more hardened in their heart. They turn away from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who again is mankind's only hope, because they were not willing to be saved. They turn away from their only hope because they're not willing to be saved. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older. Verse 9 continues, And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the midst. Verse 10, And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Now it's interesting, this is the first time the woman's been addressed in the story. And Jesus is the one who addresses her, right? Again, the religious leaders are just using her as a pawn. Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Well, you don't have a witness left. Without a witness left to testify against the woman, she has just been merely indicted. And being indicted is not the same as being guilty. So just being merely indicted, the law is powerless to touch her because there's no witnesses against her. 
And because there's no law to condemn her, there's no witnesses. The way is clear for Christ to act in grace and to act in truth. And note, obviously, the compassion that Christ has for this woman in her desperate condition. Because Christ always has compassion upon the lost. It's Christ's compassion born out of his great love for mankind. And it's really a compassion that doesn't need to be explained because it really is from the essence of the nature of God himself. John, in 1 John 14, 8 says, um, or 4, 8, God is love, right? God is love. And Jesus has come into the world as the son of the living God to manifest tangibly the love of God for the world, for a lost world. The heart of the gospel is mercy, God has a deep desire to show mercy to men, an intense desire to show favor and to be kind and compassionate to sinners who are in active rebellion against him. If you were to define mercy, it would be mercy has within it this idea of pity and compassion. It has the idea of a superior that withholds affliction upon someone or pain upon the suffering or pain or judgment upon another, an inferior one writer says like this, it's the condescending love is the idea of compassionate grace, right? That God does good to those even though they don't deserve it. That's mercy. God's condescending love, God's compassionate grace. He wants to extend mercy to those people who don't deserve mercy. The Bible tells us the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world not to condemn the world. How can you be offended at that message? Right? He came to save. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world... He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not, verse 17, God did not send the son of the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Luke 9 and 56, the son of man did not come into the world to destroy men's lives, but to save them. The compassionate, the mercy, compassionate mercy and grace of God, the love of God for men and women in rebellion against him. Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on, sin no more. So the sinner has just been exposed in the presence of him who knew no sin. The sinner has just been exposed in the presence of the sinless one, the one who's come to put away sin. He who has actually come to take the place of the woman. He's the one who clears her condemnation. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on, sin no more. And again, it's a great picture of God's grace. It's a great picture of God's unmerited kindness. Again, the righteous one, the one who takes the place of the sinner, the one who will bear the weight of her condemnation. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on, sin no more. And note the word order. Look very carefully. He did not say, Go and sin no more, and then I will not condemn you. He didn't say that. Because if he would have put it in that phrase, go and sin no more, and then I will not condemn you, that would have been a death blow to the gospel of grace. Do you understand that? The compassionate Savior, the righteous Savior says, neither do I condemn you, go your way. That's salvation by what? Grace alone. Salvation by grace alone. Absolutely nothing except salvation by grace alone, not by works. Salvation by grace alone, the one who places their faith in the Savior. Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Verse 11. Again, she said, no one, Lord. 
Is the woman saved? Romans 10 and 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The woman, or to the woman, Christ says, Where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. She stayed in the presence of the Lord when the rest left. When Christ said, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her, he was saying, All have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. She stayed. She addressed him as Lord. Well, you know, that just could be a polite master, sir. Oh, yeah, could be. Or perhaps words mean something. God knows how to communicate, and John, through the person of the Holy Spirit, knows how to take up a pen and write. That might also be another issue on the table. It might actually mean what it says. So you make a case and tell me it doesn't say what it says. Don't come bringing it to me because I don't want to listen to it. I can read. Well, maybe it's just Master Sir. Okay, so the one who's just rescued her, rescued her, the one who's just stepped in and rescued her from being stoned to death and the evil of these wicked, false religious leaders, perhaps words mean something. And she said, no one, Lord. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. How's that possible? Romans 8, 1 says, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. St. Corinthians says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how it's possible. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. If you have the NIV, it says this. Go now and leave your life of sin. That's good. Go now and leave your life of sin. Because that's what people do who have actually been forgiven. That's what people do who have actually been regenerated and saved. Recreated in Christ. They're new creatures in Christ. New creatures. Go now and leave your life of sin. St. Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a... New creature, a new creation. Old things pass away, behold, all things new come. So how can you harmonize uh, mercy and justice? Only through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only in Jesus Christ that the guilty sinner can leave the presence of a holy God not condemned. Her sin has openly been condemned. Now he says, sin no more. Right? Her sin has been condemned. He says, sin no more. She herself has not been condemned because she's been dealt with according to grace and truth, through the mercy that flows through the Savior, the one who takes her penalty and our penalty of sin upon himself, the righteous one, the righteous person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect substitute. Isn't that a good story? Amen. That's a good story. That deserves an amen. It's a wonderful story. Aren't you glad we didn't decide just to chuck it and go to lunch? You need to have your spirit filled more than you need to have your belly filled. And far more than just a battleground for textual criticism, I think these verses again point a marvelous, paint a marvelous picture again for us of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His humility, his infinite wisdom, his convicting words, his tender compassion, his, his forgiveness. 
So I personally, I'm going to teach through it. Next time I have an opportunity to teach through it, which I did this morning, I'm going to teach through it. And I'm going to say I'm very thankful that the Lord has sovereignly preserved this text for us to consider this morning. Amen. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful for this verse, so thankful for the fact that it points us to our only hope, the wonderful, righteous, compassionate, holy person of the Lord Jesus Christ, where justice and mercy have kissed. We thank you for this wonderful picture again of our wonderful Savior. We bless you. We adore you. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.